Father, we pray that uh, as we look at this passage tonight that you would help us understand it and that, that as we understand it that you would help us to, that you'd be at work in us to cause us to obey the things that we learn and to rejoice in the things that we find that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight uh, by saying uh, two or three things, or one or two things. The first is, uh, this is the most technical of all the talks that we're going to do. We need to do this because we need to do some groundwork. So if I find you fading, then I'll get you to stand up and, you know, say hello to someone and sit down again, uh, just so that we get a break in the middle. But uh, So I want to warn you ahead of time, so if you think this is going to be how it's going to be for the rest of the talks, no, this one is a bit more technical and a bit heavier. So you need to understand that before we start. So that's the first thing, because we have to do some groundwork so that we can understand this great book. Um, but to do that, we've got to do a bit of work. Um, the second thing is I want to tell you, uh, start by telling you just a little bit about uh, my wife, Heather, uh, and our life together. Now, Heather and I met when we were, uh, you probably worked out, we sort of indicated this, about 20 years old. Now, at first we, well, we sort of liked each other, but didn't see anything special in each other. Um, then over a six-month period, she lived not very far away from where I was studying in a house of four girls. And that was quite an attractive thing to a man who was living in a house, well, not in a house, but in a great theological institution that only, had only men in it, this particular part of it. So, you know, it was good to have a bunch of women not far away. Anyway, we got to know and got to like each other a bit more. And eventually we decided, uh, uh, well, we fell in love and we decided we would like to spend the rest of our lives with each other. And so we decided to get married. Now, it took us three years. Heather was a bit reluctant but it took us, it took me three years to persuade her that we should get married. No, actually it took us a bit shorter than that, but then she kept holding off the day. <laughs> now, marriage in Australia is much the same as marriage anywhere else in the world, as you know. Generally, you get together with a bunch of friends and family. And at some time during the day, there are some formal things that you have to get done. And uh, in our case, we did these sorts of things. First of all, we heard an explanation. We got together in church and we heard an explanation about what marriage is all about. And then we, are, we, we were asked if there were any reasons why we couldn't marry each other. And I was asked if I would have Heather as my wife and be loyal to her all our lives. And then she was asked, would she have me to be her husband and would she be loyal to me all her life? We then made some promises to each other. And finally, we gave each other rings that we still wear today. Actually, she had to replace hers because it was stolen, but we wear rings that are a symbol of those vows we made to each other. Then we heard from God. We had the scriptures read to us and someone explained a passage from the scriptures about marriage. And then we sought God's blessing in prayer. And finally, we signed some pieces of paper in the presence of witnesses, just like the government required us to do. Now, what we did is that we sort of entered into a contract with each other, um, an agreement. Um, that's what marriage is, really. Marriage is a lot of things, but one of the things that it is, is it's an agreement between two people. Now, I'm telling you this because it's sort of like 
what a covenant is in the Bible. A covenant is an agreement, a contract between two people or sorts of people. Uh, sometimes covenants are made between one person and another person. I wonder if anyone can remember anyone in the Old Testament that makes any two individuals that make a covenant with each other. There's one very famous one. Your God and Abraham. What about two people? There's a good one. Two people. Jonathan and David in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think it is, they make a covenant with each other. So sometimes it's one person and another person. Sometimes it's one nation and another nation. Sometimes it's God and one person or God and a whole nation. But the reason I'm telling you about covenants is that the book of Malachi is all about covenants. So in nearly every talk we look at, every passage we look at, we're going to think about Covenant, and it's going to come up again and again and again. So to understand this book, you need to understand covenants. And what happens in the Bible is God says time and time again that he has made a covenant with his people. And so time and time again, we're going to come back to that. I thought, therefore, I ought to introduce the topic to you. We're going to do more as time goes on. Now, the next thing we need to do, and this is the tricky part, because some of you won't be history buffs, And we need to do a bit of a Bible overview. Now, I'm going to do it very quickly because I'm assured that lots of you will know a reasonable amount of this. I am very sorry that the diagram you have in your outlines is so small. I hope your eyes are better than mine because I can't read it. So let me tell you some of what's there. Can you see where the timeline starts? It starts with God creating. God creates the universe, the world, all living creatures and humans with a purpose in mind. And that purpose is that they live in right relationship with him, with each other and with the environment he has placed them in. Those three things are the the most important things. That's God's purpose for his created order. And uh, it is that his creation is a place of harmony. Harmony with God and humans, harmony with humans and humans, harmony with humans and the environment in which God has placed them. That's God's goal for his creation. And what does Genesis 3 tell us? That the story is one of huge disappointment. Humans don't live according to God's purpose. Their relationship with God, with each other, and with the environment he has placed them in is tainted. Prior to human sin, what was there? Harmony in the garden. Post-human sin, what is there? Disharmony and out of the garden. The rest of the Bible, therefore, is the story of how God seeks to put harmony back into those three relationships. God and people, people and people, people and the environment God has placed them in. So, the next major event is Genesis chapter 12, where God um, sets about setting things right by choosing Abraham, and he gives them... Three great promises. What are the three promises? You should know these ones. Three promises to Abraham. Land, descendants or children, yeah, and blessing. They're the three, okay? God, the land, children, blessing. They're the three. That will shape the story of the rest of the Bible. The next major event occurs in the Exodus and you know what happens there. The book of Exodus begins with the people of God enslaved and persecuted in Egypt. They call out to God. God remembers his covenant with Abraham 
That's at the end of chapter 2. And through Moses he rescues his people and brings them out of the land of Egypt. And in this rescue of them, he shows how he's related to them in a very concrete way. He is their God. They are his people. Now that relationship between God and his people is expressed in a second covenant. The first one was, well the first one was with Noah, the second one was with Abraham and the third one is with all of Israel and it's called the Sinai covenant. And like all covenants, this covenant has two sides to it. God's side and Israel's side. God's side is he promises to be with them and be their God and care for them and be just toward them and right toward them. They promise that they'll obey him. Okay? Our next major event in history comes in the book of Joshua. After God rescues his people out of Egypt and he gives them uh, the Sinai covenant, he leads them through the wilderness to the promised land. And in the book of Joshua, the people conquer the promised land at God's help, with God's help. And... Uh, when they conquer the promised land, they are initially ruled over by people called judges. Okay, The judges are God's appointed way of ruling his people at that time. And the last of those judges is a man called Samuel, who is also a prophet. Now, we've now got to the books of Samuel, and we've got the next major event in the Bible. What I'm trying to give you as we go is sort of, uh, if we were flying over the Bible and you could see the mountain peaks, these are them. Okay, So this is the next one. You see, toward the end of his life, the people of God ask God, or ask Samuel, to give them a king. And Samuel warns them about the dangers of kingship. He says, a very risky venture having kings. They'll be interested in themselves and not so interested in you. Uh, but God allows them to have a king. They, the people press on. They want a king. God says, okay, I'll give you a king. The first king, you remember, is King Saul. Saul does not really live as God requires kings to live. And God therefore rejects him as king and tells Samuel to anoint someone else. The second king is David. Now, with David, God sows kingship into his great plan for his people and into his covenant. And so in 2 Samuel 7, he gives a covenant to David that will be an eternal covenant for David and all of his descendants. God promises that David's descendants will rule over God's people forever. Now, what happens in the books of Kings and Chronicles? Well, they tell us how kingship went and how did it go. Yeah, it didn't go well at all, did it? It went very badly. It is a very sad story. Kings proved to be, not surprisingly, just like all other human beings. Uh, the first expression of that sinful sinfulness is the division of the tribes into two. The twelve tribes get divided into two. Ten of them stay up in the north. Two of them stay down in the south. The southern kingdom becomes known as Judah. It largely consists of the two tribes. Can anyone remember the two tribes? One is Judah and the other is Benjamin. And then in the north, the remaining ten tribes, their capital city is based at, anyone know that one? The city of, well done, Samaria. And the capital city of the south, the easy one, Jerusalem. Well done. 
Anyway, the northern kingdom become idol worshippers and the end result is that they are conquered. God pronounces judgment upon them. They are conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom is not much better. They last a little longer but they also engage in idolatry and neglect the warnings of God's prophets. They tell them, you disregard God, there will be dire consequences for you. And sure enough there are. Finally, God sends the nation of Babylon as the agent of his judgment. Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 BC and the people lose the land and they're carted off into Babylon. And let me tell you that for many, as they were carted off into Babylon, it seemed as though the promises of Abraham had come to a terrifying full stop. It seemed as though God had forgotten them. However, the prophets began to tell them that God had a word of comfort for them. He told them that they told uh, the people that God still held to the covenant and and that he promised that although they'd lost the land, they can still be his people. Now, the last event I want to look at is the return. They stayed 70 years approximately in exile and the prophets promised that God would bring them back to the promised land after those 70 years and after 70 years passed, God raised up a Persian king called Cyrus. Cyrus conquered Babylon and he issued an edict. He said, all right, from now on, you Israelites can return home. And when you go home, he even gave them materials in which uh, to build things and he gave them the uh, vessels of the temple that had been taken away. But when they reconstructed the temple in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they reconstructed the temple and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, do you remember what happened when finally the temple was rebuilt? The people cried. Now why did they cry? Well, they cried out of joy that finally the temple had been restored and they cried with great pain because it looked such a trifling thing compared to what it used to be. So, there we have arrived now at the time of the ministry of the prophet Malachi. That's why we had to... So, you see why we had to do this great span of history? We had to do it to say, what is the background to this book? Malachi ministers in the time after the exile. He ministers to a people who have returned to the land. And he he ministers to this group of people who are sad because things don't look the way that they should be. And they're sad because God doesn't seem to be the God that the prophets had promised that he would be. It is a sad time for the people of God where they have massive questions for the God of the covenant. That's why I needed to give you that background. Okay, now, first thing I want to say is that the book of Malachi is structured in a very special way. I wonder when we read it this morning whether you recognise that. Let me show it to you. Open your books, your Bibles, at Malachi chapter 1. And I want you to have a look at its structure. First, God makes a statement about something. Can you see the statement God makes? I have loved you. Then he tells us that Israel has an objection to that statement by God. You can see that in verse 2. But you ask, how have you loved us? 
And then God makes his own response back to that objection. The response is, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob. In other words, can you see what's happening here in the book of Malachi? There's a dialogue going on. A dialogue between God and his people shared by the prophet. Now, as we go through the book, you might like to do this at some point in the next day or two, you'll notice this dialogue is repeated over and over again. God says something, he imagines the people saying something back, he responds back to them. You'll see one, uh, have a look at verse 6, there's another one there. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. Can you see the statement God is making? This time, the accusation is against some priests. In the second half of the verse, the priests object to God's accusation. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Then in verse 7, God responds back. He says, you have defiled the food on my altar. Can you see the, the toing and froing? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when a parent says to his child, you did that, didn't you? And the child says, or I think you're like this. And the child says, no, I'm not. And then the evidence is brought out. (laughs) It's like that. That's what's going on here. It's an interaction between a father and a child, between the Lord of the covenant and his people of the covenant. Um, Anyway, you might like to just follow those through. So that's the first bit of background. The next one is some background about covenants. Let me tell you a bit more about covenants. Now, at the centre of covenants, at the centre of my covenant with Heather, is love. At the centre of most covenants, there's a concept of love. Now let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 2. God says, I have loved you. Now in Hebrew... The word for love is a bit like our word for love. Uh, It can be used for sexual love. It can be used for the emotion of love. It can be used for family love, the love of a father for a child or a child for a parent. It, It can be used for what friends have for each other. They love each other. But when it's linked with covenants, it has a very special meaning. For example... It is used this way in many times in the book of Deuteronomy. In your Bibles, flip back to Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 37. So Deuteronomy 4, 37. And when I read this to you, I want you to ask yourself, what does love mean in this verse? Okay, what does love mean in this verse? Moses says to the people of God, chapter 4, verse 37, Because he loved our forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. I think the word love here is linked to choosing. God loves his people. You know he loves his people because he chose his people. You know I love Heather because out of all the women in the earth, I chose her. I didn't choose anyone else, I chose her. That's how I express my love, by choosing her. Love is not an emotion here, is it? It's an act of choice. It's something I do, God does toward his people. Now have a look at chapter 7, verse 8. Moses says, It was because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now what do you think love's about there? Let me read it to you again. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand. Well, love is about keeping promises here, isn't it? It's about being faithful to someone. It's about loyalty. It's about faithfulness in relationships. Now, I think both senses of that word of love are present in Malachi. Look at verse 2, back into Malachi. Sorry about that. And Maybe you've kept your finger in it. Look at verse 2. God is saying, I've chosen you, Israel, and I've been faithful to you, Israel. And can you see what the people of God are saying to God? They're saying, God, you haven't been faithful or loyal to your relationship with us. Now, if I wanted to really push it, it's going something like this. God, you might say that you love us, but you don't act like it. Okay, you might say that you love us, but you don't act like it. And you can see this in the way that we are experiencing life at the moment. Let me, now, let me give you an example of how this might work outside of Malachi with my relationship with Heather. Remember, I chose Heather above every other woman on earth. I entered into a covenant relationship with her. And when I did, I made promises to her. I said, look, I'm going to remain your husband for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for in sickness and in health, I promised I would love and cherish her as long as we both shall live. Now imagine that she became very sick. Or imagine I found out after about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of marriage that she couldn't have children. And so I woke up one day and said, oh well, that's it. I'm leaving the relationship because of this. She could respond back to me and say, couldn't she, quite rightly, Andrew, you do not love me. Does that make sense? It's not an emotion. It's a thing that's expected out of a relationship. She's saying, you are not being faithful to me. You are not caring for me. You are not fulfilling promises to me. You are not loving me in the true biblical sense of the word. What she means is, Andrew, you're not being faithful or loyal to promises. You're not sticking by our agreement. Your agreement with me said you would stick with me in sickness and in health and I'm not as healthy as you like. And you're leaving. You are not faithful. You do not love. That's what the Hebrew word means. It's very rich, isn't it? Now, that brings us to our next bit of background. God is saying that he has been faithful to his people Israel. He has loved Israel, but Israel is disputing it. Israel is saying, God, you haven't been faithful. You have not loved your people. Now, one more bit of background. I told you this was going to, we were going to have a bit more technical stuff tonight, and so we have. So stick with me for this one. Who are the people mentioned in the next series, the next verse or two? They are Isaac and Esau. Now, in order to understand them, you need to understand a bit more biblical history. Travel back with me into the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah, they have a child. The child's name is Abraham and Sarah's child, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah gives birth to twins. The first is called Esau. 
He's also known as Edom, which means, anyone know that one? Red. Yes, so perhaps he was a red-headed boy. Strange for a Jew, isn't it? But nevertheless, the nation of Edom is descended from him. Okay. The other son who is born is named Jacob. He is later renamed by God Israel. And the nation of Israel descends from him. Now when you read the stories of Jacob and of Esau in Genesis 25 to 27, it becomes clear that God has chosen Israel, Jacob, rather than Esau, Edom. And Esau and Edom throughout the book of Genesis struggle with each other. They even struggle in their mother's womb. And the nations that grow from them struggle with each other. And in fact, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, let me tell you a little story. So you imagine, this is the worst event in Israelite history in one sense. The Babylonians have come, they've besieged your city, cannibalism has started in the city, it's been atrocious, it's an atrocious experience. And then the Babylonians finally break through the walls. They invade the city. Now, you Israelites, some of the Israelites have prepared some sort of secret doors out. Okay, some secret ways out of this city. And they flee. And as they flee, do you know what happens? The Edomites, who have been standing around watching, gather them up and give them back to the Babylonians. It's not very nice, is it? But yet that's what's happened. That's the sort of story of the relationship between them. Israel is descended from Jacob, Edom is descended from Esau and the history between them is one of struggle and mistreatment. Lest you think that only the Edomites acted that way, the Israelites acted fairly awfully toward the Edomites at various times as well. Now, when we've looked at that bit of background, let's see what's going on in the passage. Have a look at it again. Imagine the setting. The Israelites have been in exile. Some of the prophets had seemed to indicate that when they came back, things would be good. God would bless them. God would dwell among them. But the blessings didn't arrive. In fact, life back in the land after the exile was pretty grim. It was hard work. And the people of God began to wonder if God had been unfaithful to his covenant, whether his love was like the love of a husband who leaves his wife. They began to think that God was like an unfaithful husband. He deserted the wife of his youth. He hadn't kept his word. And that's what the debate is about here. God says, I have loved you. And Israel says, how have you loved us? Come on, show us for goodness sake. We don't feel like it. And that's exactly what God does in verse 3. He reminds his people they have a brother nation, Edom. And he urges them, compare your situation with that of Edom. As God's elect people, you Israelites have been punished in exile. But the exile was not the end for you, was it? I brought you back. I gave you back the land. I gave you what I promised. I've restored the land I always promised you. I have loved you. I have kept my word. I have been loyal. I have shown faithfulness and loyalty to you. Compare that with Edom. Just have a look over your fence. Look at the Edomites. I judged Edom just like I judged you. 
but I have not given them back their land. And the mountainous land which they boasted in has become a wasteland. It is empty, there are jackals in it. No one is there. The Edomites may attempt to return and rebuild, but I will stop such a venture. There is an end to my judgment upon you, Israel, but there will be no end to my judgment on Edom. That's very tough, isn't it? But I'm telling you what the passage is saying. There will not be an end to God's wrath on Edom. In other words, can you see what's happening? God is saying, compare your situation to that of Edom. Compare my continued opposition toward Edom and my attitude toward you in giving you back your land. I have loved you. But as Paul says later on, in comparison I've hated Edom. It's not as though God has been negative in his emotions, but in comparison his attitude toward Israel has been like love toward hatred. Now, friends, let's think about what this passage says to us. So that's where we've been going. It is a very tough passage in many ways. You see, I think here there are some clear parallels between the ancient people of God spoken to in the book of Malachi and us. First, who are we? Well, if we are Christian people, then we are people God has loved. The book of Deuteronomy explained that God showed his love toward people by choosing them. Well, God has shown his love toward us. How? By sending his son into the world to die for us. If we are Christians, we have received God's love. We are the loved children of God. The second thing to say is that if we are the people, that we are people of God who are in relationship with God. God has chosen us in Christ. God has demonstrated his great love toward us in Christ. God has entered into a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes that clear, doesn't he, when he celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples. Do you remember what he said? He says to them in Luke 22 verse 20, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We are every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are reminding, being reminded by God and reminding each other, I'm in covenant with God and with His people. We are in covenant relationship with God. Now, remember what I said about covenants. Covenants have two sides. On the one side, they tell us, God is for you. God is committed to you. God is on your side. He will stick by you. He will love you in the sense of being faithful to you and loyal to you. That is the great blessing of being in covenant relationship with God. If you are in covenant relationship with God, he is for you no matter what. That was great encouragement to Israel. And that is the great encouragement we should take away from Malachi's words as well. God loves us. God is for us. God will be faithful to us. However, I need to say there's another side. There's another side to all covenants. The other side is that we are called to love him. We are called to be faithful to him. We must be loyal to him. 
And as we'll find out as the book of Malachi progresses, if we are not, he will judge us. The history of God's people shows this. God's people did not keep his covenants. They did not keep his commandments. They did not love him as he had loved them. And so he sent them into exile, punished them and judged them. He did forgive them and he did comfort them, but he did judge them. Friends, many Christians today think that being in relationship with God is all about blessing. It's all about everything being good and right, but it is not. Being in relationship with God demands that you are you respond in love to him. It demands that you obey him. It demands that you are faithful to him. And if you do not, then let me speak to you truly that what God's word says time and time again, then he will judge you just as he judged his ancient people Israel. So beware. Relationship with God has two sides to it. It has promise of great blessing. It has a great promise of God's enormous love in Christ. But it also holds the threat of judgment if you don't love God back. It's a terrifying way to start three days away, isn't it? But we need to start there because that's where the book of Malachi is going to take us. It is going to give us some great promises to offset that. That's why you'll need to come back for the rest of the talks. Now, there may be some questions come out of that because this is a complicated and difficult little section. But how about we pray there and uh, then I think you have small groups. Is this right? And then you can come back for questions after that. Let me pray. Father, we, we stand in awe of a number of things as we've looked at this passage tonight. We stand in awe that you have loved us so much. We stand in awe at the love you have poured out in Christ. And Father, we stand in awe that you are still a God who is a consuming fire as well, a God who is a judge. These things, Father, we find hard to hold in tension, and yet we know that your word does. Please help us in these next few days as we look at your word more to grasp how to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well done, folks. You stuck with me quite well this evening and we had a lot to do, so thank you very much.